Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Janice Dean Podcast. Have I got a treat for you. One of my bestest pals, Shanna Bream, is here today in person. She lives in D.C., and I don't get to see her as much as I would love to, but we still manage to text and call and catch up all the time. She, of course, has her own podcast, Live in the Bream, and we talked about doing part one of an interview on this podcast and then continuing the conversation on her podcast later this week. So that's what we're doing. Part one of the Bream Dean Dream Team starts now, and stay tuned for part two on Friday this week. The fun starts now, so here we go. Shannon Bream, you made the Dean's List. I am so honored. It took me 50 plus years, but I finally got here. No, come on. I'm sure you made the Dean's List in your in your academic well, career. Well, but that was nothing compared to this. Oh, I like how you did that. <laughs> how are you, my friend? I'm good. It's so good whenever I get to see you in person. Shen- shenanigans will ensue. Right. What were we calling ourselves before the the Bream Dean Dream Team? I know. Right? 2024, are you up? Of course. <laughs> we're doing Is it. America ready for us? Oh my gosh, I think we could. I think we would win. I think there's a lane for us, as they say. <laughs> what would be our slogan? Uh, there are snacks for all. <laughs> Snacks for all would be a start. I think we're in. Shenanigans and snacks. Do we have to fill out any paperwork? I think there's this FEC thing about like, <laughs> should we put up a website and start soliciting donations? Like we're going to get in trouble with the ethics right from day one of right. our campaign. All of a sudden, you know, HR is coming down and saying, what are you ladies talking um, about? We're running for the White House. <laughs> we're here to save America. Well, we have been to the White House. You actually took right. me to the White House Christmas party several years ago. And it touched my heart because I think I was on a vacation with my family and I get a text from you and you said that your wonderful husband, um, Sheldon was doing something else yeah, and you could go. have a plus one. Mm-hmm. And would I be interested? And I just thought, Oh my goodness. What a, out of all the people you could have invited to the white house Christmas party, you picked me. I picked the party animal. <laughs> like I know who's going to be a good time at the white house party. I have a picture. It popped up the other day in my memories. It's of you and me and Michelle Obama and president Obama. And there we are at the white house in our finery. Yes. And um, by the way, side note, that was the very first time I ever rented a dress from rent the runway. <gasps> Are you still renting the runway? I am renting the runway. I do it for jewelry a lot now, too. I, Sorry, this is not a plug. I am not a paid endorser. No, no you problem. know what? Part of the podcast is I do want to ask my very special guests who made the Dean's List, what are things that you can't live without? Mm-hmm. You know, and for us, I mean, listen, you don't, our wardrobe is a big part of our yeah, life. It is. And it's expensive. And a lot of people mm-hmm. think we make gargantuan amounts <laughs> right, of money, right. which we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can support our wardrobe mm-hmm. of an outfit every one out of 365 days. I know. And I feel like people sometimes are like, didn't you just wear that three weeks ago on Twitter? And I'm like, yeah, but it's my favorite blazer and I'm going to keep wearing it. Actually, I think that's good. I like it when people post pictures of, here's Janice Dean wearing the same dress four times. Right, because normal people do that. That's right, exactly. And we're not men and we love the men that work at Fox, uh, but they get to wear suits and literally they could wear the same suit every day with a different tie. Remember the guy who did that? I think it was in Australia. He did it as an experiment. He did not tell anyone. And he wore the same suit. I think it was for a year. Uh, yeah. Can you and imagine like, if we wore the, the same, same dress? dress every day? I think after like day three, there'd be a call. <laughs> like, what's going on? You know, did you get evicted? Why don't you have any other clothes but that dress you're wearing? But Rent the Runway did kind of a some great thing. things. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, and if people don't know what it is, it's you, you go online, you pay a monthly fee, and mm-hmm. you have a huge pick 
of yeah. wardrobe cho- choices. They mail them to your home right. or your office. And then once you wear it, you mail it back. Right. Yeah. I think it's a very economical thing. And what I think is fun is they have a counter on there that will say, this is the value of everything that you've rented. Mm. So if you rent like a $2,000 evening gown or something for like 50 bucks, yeah. it's a really cool deal. And so they'll tell you like over your lifetime, you've rented hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of clothes. Yeah. And you never had to buy them. I think it's really smart. I, listen, the women who came up with that were geniuses. Yes. Mm-hmm. What are things that you cannot live without? Okay. Um, besides Sheldon and Biscuit. Oh, I know. We have to talk about them the because ones. they really are. They're the number ones. I mean, Janice knows. Um, poor Janice was visiting <laughs> me a couple weekends ago and Biscuit latched on to you. That's okay. Like she, with those puppy dog eyes, she's staring at you constantly like, Janice, I love you. Please take me home with you. She's taking pictures, you. right, of Biscuit staring at her. Oh my gosh. I think it's she's, more like, are you going to feed me? Are there going to be treats? <laughs> she's very into the treats as am I. So it's like mother, like daughter. Um, you know what? There are little things I love, little hacks along the way. I would say Run the Runway is a fun one. I have ladies, if you are the same age as Janice and I, which is 15 fabulous. We are seasoned. Um, we are. Um, I find that lipstick will bleed. You know, if you put it on, it yes. bleeds. So I found this thing at Sephora a few years ago. Again, okay. not a paid endorser. Um, I just like it because it's a lip liner, but you actually, it's clear and it's waxy. And so you use it outside your lip line and it traps anything oh. from feeding into those little lines around your lips. Can I like, you put it them. all over my face? Yes. Or <laughs> fill in like, I'm drawing around my eyes. I'm using it. It's just for lips, but I put it everywhere. Um, and that's just one of those little things that when I find something like that, I like to share it with people because mm-hmm. um, it's inexpensive, but it solves a problem. Yeah. You know, so I, I like that. When HDTV oh, came no. in, it's it was friend. like, we, it's not our friend. Even when I was 20, it's like in hotel rooms, <laughs> the worst possible lighting ever. It like crushes your soul to get ready in, in a hotel. You are such a beautiful person. I, girl, you know what I'm talking about. Like every little thing is on there. And I'm like, is that what I really look like in real life? I'm scaring myself. <laughs> well, I've always said that I will. <laughs> Uh-oh, uh-oh. I told you this. Uh, you know, I hate my neck. I've always hated my neck. So I want to make a gigantic light <laughs> I, I can know. wear on my neck. Right. So the light will come right. up and it's gonna hide be like a everything. Belt. It's going to be a belt that when you see us walking down the street, jutting out from our waist will be a light that points upward to our neck and face area. So when people will say like, oh my gosh, you look so good. I'm like, do you know what kind of lighting we have on TV? And if we could walk around with that. Yes. And listen, people do weird things like that sounds ridiculous but think about some of the things that you see people doing and wearing that are so ridiculous like there will come a time I'm going to predict when the light belt thing Dean Bream light belt apparatus is happening Dean Bream light belt machine (laughs) I can hear the cash registers already (laughs) well I mean when you take selfies they have the lighting around the phone and you hold them above you Like we know all the tricks. When I see somebody taking a picture from down below, I'm like, no, no, no. Right. You have to correct that. I can I tell this story really quick. Yes. My very first book, I, when I went on the book tour, was so fun. We went places like the villages and other places where we met tons of Fox fans and family and friends. And so Anna, my assistant at the time, who was six feet tall with no heels, yeah, um, former Division One volleyball player, very competitive, very talented in so many ways. She was the greatest picture taker because she's already above you, yes. like taking the picture. So when people would come 
through the line and they hand their cell phone, like, okay, I need a selfie. You know, you're trying to do it kind of quickly and sign the mm-hmm. book and meet people. But Anna was a pro. She would stand above you, already six feet tall, and take this thing, a selfie, where like, no one has any neck wrinkles, everything looks good <laughs> from above. And at this one place that we were at, I will not name it, but it was a bookstore, and there was a lady there who refused to let anyone else take pictures. She's like, no, we handle it. We keep the line moving, whatever. She literally sat on a footstool. So she's taking it from like, our midsection. Oh, up. no. I'm like, every picture that is happening today, I can't even think about the nice people that I'm meeting. Or I'm just thinking about all these pictures going onto Facebook and Twitter and everywhere forever from below my 50-year-old neck and face. Oh, stop. You are beautiful. But listen, if you're a man listening, we love you. If you're going to take a picture of your wife or your girlfriend or whoever, always do it from above. Take it upstairs. And we will love you forever. Mm-hmm. And you know the men who are trained. You see them doing it and you're like, oh, she's really trained him. Like, he knows <laughs> Right up here. Start up above. (laughs) You are one of the nicest people. And, you know, I talk about this on the podcast. I've interviewed a lot of Fox friends, and we always talk about the secret sauce. And I think the secret sauce here is the people that you see on TV are really the people that you know in real life are like that. It's true. And you are maybe even more than that. You outshine your personality on television. Well, it's true. And people know that we're buddies and you have a Janice Dean bedroom in your home. I do. The the Janice Bream. Janice, I I gave you Bream. You've married into the family now. Um, Janice Dean Sweet. Yeah. Well, Marie loves me. I know my mom is your biggest fan. And I've told this story many times about how there was literally a hurricane coming to Florida where my parents live. They're up in the panhandle. So thank God that they are, they escaped Ian. But we have so many family and friends in the middle of Florida who are really struggling. And thankfully, they have uh, a lot of optimism and they're all helping each other, which is a beautiful thing with whatever they have. Mm -hmm. But this particular time, there's something moving into the panhandle. And my mom, I'm on the phone with her like, mom, you guys need to pack up the car and like go inland a little bit go see your friends in Alabama or do something no 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 we're gonna be fine I finally get Janice and I'm like Janice you have got to tell my parents leave you literally mentioned Marie on TV the next time I called her she was in the fo- in the car Aww. they had packed up because she'll listen to you mm. Marie trusts you well listen that brings up a, a good point you're from Florida we just had an unbelievably devastating hurricane we've got over a hundred deaths and to be honest with you it's not an exact science I think the messaging should have been people all along the West Coast need to be pay attention. We did focus on Tampa because when you go to meteorology class, mm-hmm. there are very vulnerable spots across the U.S., New Orleans being one of them. Mm-hmm. Tampa Bay is yep. also one of the most vulnerable places yep. on the planet for a hurricane to move in. It will you know, devastate that region. The water has mm-hmm. nowhere to go. It will overtop homes. Mm-hmm. And so we did focus on that. And then when we saw the track move, southward towards the Fort Myers area, a lot of us are like, we should have been better at the messaging because it always happens that, especially Florida, I find it's been really hard to forecast an exact pinpoint of landfall where the worst of the winds and the Mm -hmm. rain are going to move through. And I remember early on, we were talking about your mom and early on the forecast was for the panhandle. Right. And so I was sending you all of this information. Um, But people in Florida... I mean, are very protective of their homes, their mm-hmm. land. And we have just gone through a pandemic. And I think a lot of people were like, you know what? We've just gone through so much. A lot of people don't have the money to evacuate. Right. Um, so we have to sort of, you know, forgive ourselves a mm-hmm. little bit. Sometimes the storm comes in. It 
it doesn't go as planned mm-hmm. and people are are still going to stay. What do you say about that? Yeah, having grown up there and been through many storms um, and near misses as a kid growing up in Florida, I think those of us who are there get kind of battle hardened. Like, okay, I know how to put up the plywood. You fill up the tub with water. You eat everything in the freezer. We used to love it. My mom would be like, well, we're going to have to eat all the ice cream, which, you know, we always had ice cream in our house. Yeah. Because it's going to, everything's going to melt. So it was almost like a, a party atmosphere, like trying to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. And so you get so used to going through that time and time again, I think that people feel like we know how to ride this out. We've done it before. But when something like Ian shows up, you don't, you can't ride that out. But there are people also, you know, there was an influx of hundreds of thousands of people to Florida during the pandemic. So they may have no experience with storms and not get what these warnings really mean. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a mix of all of that. And of course, of the storm making this Southern jag at the last minute. Um, You know, I read a really interesting article that talked about Lee County, where so much of this damage is, that they have a, you know, plans they put in place so that this exact thing doesn't happen. And something was off. Something didn't get triggered until the last minute when for some people it was too late to go. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully we take lessons from it. Um, But the devastation, like, you know, with any big storm, it's going to take years to clean up. I mean, when I'm in the panhandle, Michael's still, we're years out from that. There's still tons of damage from Michael. too. Category five storm Mm -hmm. that also, uh, you know, wasn't, didn't originally say it was going to move to the panhandle. So Mm -hmm. again, it's a lesson, you know, it's been a very quiet season. We, you know, as forecasters, we can only do as best as we can with the science and the knowledge that we have, but it's really up to the families to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. But I will always be there for Marie and give her the Thank best, you. best I can. She's her own private meteorologist. Aww. We'll be back with more sunshine right after this. How do you like enjoying your new job? I love it. Um, it's funny because I'm still during the during the week covering the Supreme Court and legal issues and popping up on different shows here and there. But I walked into such an amazing team. Um, we literally have someone on the team who's been there for 20 plus years. Mm. So Fox News Sunday has got its own tradition and we're just trying to build on that. And so we're trying different things every week. You're going to have the newsmakers, the policymakers, the lawmakers as the core of the show. Politics and what's happening in Washington will always be what happens there. But we're doing interesting different things and trying them out. Too, and we find people are responding to them. Um, we had Andy Pettit on the first week I did the show on 9 11 because he was, you know, world famous pitcher, multi world series winner with the Yankees, and he was there when George W. Bush, then the president, threw up that first pitch I at remember. the world series game. Yep, and because the show was on 9 11, we were commemorating that. We were like, let's bring in a voice that's a little different. And Andy talked about what it was like to be in New York in those weeks following 9 mm-hmm. 11 and what that pitch meant and kind of sports as a unifier. Um, This week, we also had another sports thing, and we had Jim Gray on. Listen, there's so much to talk about with Aaron Judge's home run record, with the NFL concussion protocol, all kinds of things. So we'll do things that are culture and faith and sports that are a little bit different, too. We'll just add that to the mix. You're such a hard worker, too. I want people to know that. Thank you. you um, Not only doing this big, big program, uh, but you also cover the Supreme Court. How Mm -hmm. is that? You still love that. I loves it. Um, I am a retired recovering attorney. And so I've always loved covering the court. It gets really wonky sometimes what they're doing over there. But my goal is always to make people at home understand why it impacts their life and why they should care about these cases. Now, some of them are weird, like railway disputes between states. Like, you know, I mean, that's going to affect you down the line with how things are moved around the country and that kind of thing. But I want people to understand, like, we're covering this case. Literally, I've been covering this case 
for 10, 12, 15 years. It's been back and forth to the Supreme Court about these people who live in Idaho. They bought a plot of land in a subdivision. We're getting ready to build. And somebody from the EPA came and said, hey, there's water that puddles up here sometimes. You can't build here. It's a, it's attached to a wetlands. Mm-hmm. Well, to get to the wetlands from their home, you have to actually go through another subdivision. It's not as if they live on the banks of a wetlands. So it's this big debate about what can the government tell you about using your private property? They've literally been fighting this for 15 years. And the fine that they would face if they started to build, there was $75,000 a day. No one can do that. And so, you know, those are things that all of us want to own a home or own a piece of property and have the freedom to do with it what we want. How do you balance that with the government's interest in protecting our environment? So cases like that, um, I want people to think about what it means to them. Mm -hmm. What do you think the biggest election issue is? Mm, The Senate. (laughs) Listen, in all the polling, everybody tells us what they care about most are inflation jobs and the economy. That's what they're worried about because everybody, when you go fill up the gas tank or try to buy groceries, they see the real world impact on their lives. And polling shows us they blame the administration that's in power. And they want to usually, history shows us, punish the party in power when the economy is not going well. So that normally would impact a lot of what happens. But you have these other issues that have bubbled up. Crime is a tough one, too. Um, But abortion and the big decision from the Supreme Court. So a lot of states, that's going to be a big thing on the ballot, too. Um, So it all comes down to we think the Republicans will hold on to the House. That makes Mm. sense. Um, But the Senate is down to literally like three to five states. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's where the data gets so interesting, really digging into Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, a couple of others. Um, So we'll be, you know, covering it around the clock. And you're writing another book. I am. Can we give out what it is? I don't think we can yet. Oh, okay. But it will say, I will tell you, if you've liked the last two books, Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak and Women of the Bible Speak, there's a theme there. You'll hear more about the Bible. I love that. How did that come about, by the way? You know, Fox actually came to me and said uh, a few years ago, we're thinking about getting into doing some books and we're thinking about doing one with women and faith and that space and religion. And we know your faith is very important to you. Would you be interested in getting involved with this book? And I was like, heck yeah. Yeah. So um, I've, I grew up in a Christian home, going to church and Christian school. So I knew a lot of these women and these stories, but I've learned so much more. It's been a really rich um blessing, honestly, in my life. And I, in the first one I was writing a lot during COVID where we all felt kind of isolated and anxious mm-hmm. and separated. And I was just remembered of like how God works through tough situations too. And it was very encouraging to me. And that's what I hope these books are to mm-hmm. people. What's one of the stories where you were, you're surprised by? Mm, I think probably Deborah. Okay. She was a judge in the Old Testament. And people a lot of times think, oh, religion doesn't treat women well and they're kind of second class citizens. And they may have, you know, some misconceptions about faith and, and and specifically about the Christian faith and what role women play. But Deborah, I love this. You know, she's um in the Old Testament in Jewish, which the Christian, you know, faith builds on those Jewish traditions, where she was the leader of Israel. And she was a bad mamma jamma. That's not a direct <laughs> quote from the judges <laughs> where you'll find her. But she was, you know, God came to her and said, I want you to take the people of Israel and to battle against the Canaanites. And they were totally outmanned, outgunned. You know, the Canaanites had weapons and chariots and all these things that the humble kind of hill people of Israel did not have. And so she didn't question that. She's like, okay. She goes to the leader of the Israelite ar- army and says, 
all right, God's told me we're going into battle against Canaanites and you're supposed to go do it. And he's like, uh, because on paper, this is like a bad, terrible mission to go on. And he says, I'll only do it if you go with me. And if you don't go, I won't go with you. And she's like, okay, I will go with you. But because of your hesitance, the leader, the the bad guy on the other side of the army of the Canaanites, he's actually going to be delivered into the hands of a woman. And that's what happens in the story. The Israelites completely rout the Canaanites in a way that only could be miraculous. And at the end, there is a woman who takes out the only person who survived to that point, which was the leader of the Canaanite army. So just to watch that she was so brave and stepped into this role and as a woman was a real leader, I just love everything about her. Yeah, because you hear about the David and Goliath stories, but yeah. that that's that's a but woman. But her story is, is beautiful too. And there's so many like Queen Esther and in the New Testament, so many women there too that were part of Jesus' ministry. Mm-hmm. And he broke all kinds of norms in the day, like to be hanging out with women, to for them to be sitting at his feet and learning as like an esteemed rabbi. He just and he went to people like, you know, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well who was living a life of shame and of being a total outcast. And yet he went to her, knew of obviously she would be there and that he would share the gospel with her. And so I love the compassion that you see in his heart that he went to people that were complete outcasts that. You know, I was reading the story a couple of days ago of Zacchaeus, who was this tax collector. And in those times, everybody hated the tax collectors. They showed up at their house, at your house and took these, in many cases, just exorbitant amount of whatever you had. And so Zacchaeus was not a favored guy. So Jesus is walking through town. Zacchaeus is up in a tree, wanted to see him. Zacchaeus, Jesus sees him and he's like, Zacchaeus, come down from there. And he says, I want to go to your house and have dinner with you. And everybody's like, you're going to dine with a sinner? And Jesus is like, heck yeah. And so he comes to us as sinners and loves every single one of us equally. He has no favoritism. And he wants to redeem us, not condemn Mm. us. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I've had an ongoing discussion with Kathy Lee Gifford about forgiveness. And you know, how do you feel about that? It is really difficult because I think of some of the worst things that have happened in my life. And I'm like, surely you don't mean for me to forgive that person. Yes. But you think about what scripture says about, you know, when you're asked, how many times am I supposed to forgive them? 70 times seven, which wasn't a literal number. Like we're not counting to 490. I think Christ says like where you can't forgive, I fill in that gap. Hmm. Like you can ask me for help because we're human. We're going to be really hurt by things. So I think what, what Jesus says is like, I'll meet you there and help you. And I forgive you of everything. Um, I think there are a lot of parables in the Bible where he says, you know, how can you not then turn around and forgive others? Because I will wipe everything away that you ever do. Hmm. So I think it's really hard to do it in human strength. And that's where you got to pray and say like, Lord, I can't do it. This person's a disaster. They've hurt me so badly, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to trust you to help me to do it. Okay. I like that actually. And, and I think it takes time sometimes. Like there are deep wounds and yeah. you know them and I, I know them. And I feel like, He says, like, it's okay. We're going to get there together. I like that. I like that, the way you think about that. I can can lean on him to help me with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because he knows, like, we're limited. When did you feel that faith was in your life right away? Well, my mom, interestingly enough, my parents divorced when I was really young. And my mom was kind of a baby Christian in her faith then. But she got a teaching job at a Christian school. And so then I was, it was poured over me all the time, like learning Bible verses and hearing Bible stories about Moses and about Jesus and about Esther and all of those characters from the Bible. And so I really 
was being fed in that a lot. And at home, my mom was growing and feeding me in that too. And you know, Marie, she's like the most godly person I know. She literally would give you her last dime, her last bite of food, like the shirt off her back. So I saw it modeled. It wasn't just go to church and sit there and read about the stories. Like she really lived it. And there was a a point like junior high where I felt like I have to make this personal. Like I have to say, okay, Jesus, I accept you. I believe you're my savior and I'm putting my life in your hands. And so that's the point it became personal for me Mm -hmm. as kind of an early teenager. Mm -hmm. And when have you leaned on him recently? Oh my goodness. I honestly feel like it's every day. Yeah. I really do because we all are throwing curveballs that we aren't expecting. And um, I just have a constant awareness of needing him. And, and like anytime I'm driving, have you driven in the car with me? Yes, many times. <laughs> we blast the 80s we music. We do blast the 80s music and sing, but I have a little bit of a temper and a patience issue behind the Listen, wheel. Listen, I'm not going to. And I pray. Right. I do like, Lord, please forgive me. Please help me to calm down. So it could be little things like that, or it could be a scary diagnosis or horrible thing that happens, like that he's always there. You never have to go find him. He's always there. Hmm. How did you meet your husband? I met him in college. And, um, you know, people, this whole thing, this ring by spring, you've heard that? No. Where the girls say, like, you got to have the ring before graduation, like ring by spring. Oh, no, I've never heard of that before. It's a thing now, apparently. Wow. This was not a ring by spring situation. I did not go on a date with him until my last semester. And I thought he's really hot. And he's going to take me to free dinner. But I knew I was going off to law school. I thought, I'm never going to see this guy again. Yeah. But, but you knew of each other. We kind of had a friend that was always trying to set us up, but we were dating other people. Okay. So finally, we're both single. And we got on this date the day before Valentine's Day, February 13th. Aww. And he had his he and his roommate made me dinner. And he made me a handwritten card and then took me to a concert. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy is not who I a thought he was. A handwritten card? Yes. Do but the funny thing is, I do. I what? saved it all these years later. And it said something like... Um, I hope that we can be the best of friends. And then I took that as a weird, oh, like, oh, his friend zoning me. And he always says, like, what did you expect me to say in the note? Like, I hope we get naked and get married and, like, all this stuff. You can't say that in the card. Um, <laughs> so so it says something about being friends. He was like, I was trying to work up to it. Um, but... I realized on date one, like, this is husband material. Yeah. Did you feel the same way about Sean? Like, this is a special person. I, I knew he was a special person, but it took some time because I think we were both. He had just gotten out of a relationship. I had just moved to New York and didn't yeah. like it, was in a bad job. Yeah. Um, so I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> I've told you many times over cocktails, but um, I knew he was a good man. Right. And I knew that he had a really good heart. So we got there eventually, yeah. but it took some time. But I was really glad because my whole life was always like, <gasps> Oh, you know, it's like love at first sight. Which and is that, so dangerous. Right. Not that it can't happen. Of course. It work, but... But for me, it wasn't the yeah. recipe. Right. And when you say that, ladies, please, 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 any single people listening out there, and men too, if you find someone that is a good to the core person... Mm-hmm. And you want to get married, that is spouse material. Yes. And that's what I felt about Sheldon right away. He talked about his family, about his faith was very important to him. And I just kind of thought he was this baseball player, jock, like good looking guy, like that there wasn't going to be all that there. But he actually went home that night and told his roommates we were going to get married. (gasps) And they were like, dude, it's one date. Calm down. (laughs) He didn't tell me that. But eventually, and I think we both immediately knew like, oh my goodness, this person is special. Like it's worth figuring this thing out and taking it at the appropriate speed. And how long have you been married for? 27 years almost. Oh, We're old. But you're so adorable (laughs) together. You really are. And you can tell. Well, like we always say, we are not perfect. Like every marriage we've had our moments, like, are we going to make it? I Mm -hmm. think everybody is going to have that if they're being honest. 
But we always say we're not perfect, but we're perfect for each other. Yeah. And so I think God put us together and I'm really grateful for that. I'm selfish and flawed. And at moments he might be too. But if you can recognize that and be each other's like biggest fan and biggest cheerleader, mm-hmm. you can make it. Yeah. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. I want to circle back to that um, that guy, that guy who hired you and said that you weren't good on TV. Oh, okay. So to, to his credit, he hadn't actually hired me. When he walked into the station, I was working there already. He was more than happy to fire me. <laughs> Gosh. But, I mean, it was my very first job. I'd been a lawyer. I started interning at a TV station. I produced. I worked the teleprompter. I wrote. Eventually, I started reporting, but I had no training. And this was after the lawyer. This is after lawyer. And so I did not have any training in the TV business. And so I was learning as I went. And there were people who were really kind who said, like, let me show you how to write a script. Let me help you shoot a stand-up. And so I was slowly learning those things. And that boss said, okay, when nobody else is available and we really need someone, we'll send you out on a story. So it was really just kind of finding my way. Well, that guy that took the chance on me, he and the other boss got fired. So total management change. The new guy who came in, Everybody freaked out, but I was like, oh my gosh, I work overnights. I make no money. I'm so happy here. I do 10 jobs. Like I'm safe. I feel fine. So two weeks after the new guy on a Friday, I got called into the office. And when I walked in, the head of HR was sitting there and Mm. I thought I'm getting promoted. (laughs) which shows you what an idiot I was. No, if head of HR is on a Friday afternoon sitting in the office, you're not getting promoted. And the guy literally said to me, you're the worst person I've ever seen on TV. You will never make it in this business. And he said, I hope you're a better lawyer than reporter because you have to go back to doing that. And I was humiliated and I was really just so gut punched and hurt. And I cried in a soundproof edit bay like the one we're in right now for two hours and called everyone who I thought loved me and spilled my guts. And you know, the funny thing is I'd spent a lot of time thinking and praying about making this job change. And I was convinced this is what God had called me to do. And so Sheldon, luckily my partner in crime, was like, you're not giving up. You are going to prove this guy wrong. And I thought, maybe I am terrible. Let's watch my tapes. Let's see what I can do to get better. And it was months of cricket chirping before anybody ever called me back um, for a job. And it was really hard, but I learned so much about staying humble, about trusting God, about you cannot love your job and find your identity in it. It's not going to love you back. Mm -hmm. And so there's a place for it in your life. And I just learned a lot through getting fired. He did me a favor. Right. You think about those moments, even though at the time they were devastating, right? but they were required for the path that you're on today. Yeah. And you've had those too. Things that are really awful and difficult and bad places are bad. We we secretly (laughs) share details about people that we've had to work with over the years that weren't so great to us. Right. But it is part of the path of where I'm so grateful to be now. Mm-hmm. Is that so guy around still? I don't know. And listen, I have zero ill will to him because I really feel like he did make me have to wake up and say like, all right, how can you get better? But he shouldn't have looking? said it like that. Well, he did take a little bit too much glee in dropping the bomb. <laughs> it felt it felt painful at the time. But, you know, you put yourself in that situation and in that job, got to be a big girl and take the lumps when they come. And so I would love to run across paths with him again and say, mm-hmm. like, thank you. Like, it hurt at the time, but I'm here because of you. So you forgave him. Absolutely. <laughs> I, there's one. There's one really tough one in my life. I'm still working on a forgiveness issue. But, okay. And sometimes I think I'm done with it. You know, like, okay, mm-hmm. I got that on my system. And then I still feel the struggle there. And I'm like, God, you know, I don't even want to try to forgive this person. So sometimes I just pray, help me to be willing to try to I'm forgive so someone. I'm so glad you told me that because I do feel, 
you know, I know that forgiveness is for me, not mm-hmm. for the other person, mm-hmm. but I do right. really need help to get there. Yeah, we can't. I don't think in our own human strength, we're capable of some of the really bad stuff that's happened to us to be able to say like, okay, I let that go. Mm-hmm. I feel like we have to have God's help for that. Yeah. You've had some health issues mm-hmm. in your in your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you were at a point where you weren't feeling a good about your mm-hmm. life. And how how do you go back there and think about the lessons that you learned from that? It was a really dark time of living in chronic pain for a couple of years and going from doctor to doctor. You know what this is like to get an accurate diagnosis, to get the right medication, to get the help you need. Like, we know you have to fight for yourself yes. in the health care field. And I think sometimes we expect doctors to understand and know everything and, and be able to easily diagnose and figure it out and get us on the treatment plan and everything's good. It's a fight. You have to advocate for yourself over and over and over again. And I had gotten to the point where I didn't want to go back to a doctor two years into this with this chronic pain because the the one specialist I'd seen had told me I was being very emotional. Oh. And I was because I couldn't sleep. I was in enormous pain all the time. Where was the pain coming from? I was having eye problems where I was constantly having um, excruciating pain with my eyes. It would jolt me out of bed at night. There were very weird clues that eventually made sense. But I was living with migraines and double vision during the day. I couldn't sleep at night because of the chronic pain. And that just spins you into a tough place mentally and with your mental health. And so I'd gotten to a place where I was looking online for answers, which I always tell people do not do. Mm. Because you go to WebMD and you're like, I have 53 things and I'm dying in 17 seconds. Yes. But I couldn't find things to match my my symptoms. So I finally found this online um, like message room, chat room, and I immediately clicked with these people like, oh my goodness, whatever they're talking about, that's what I have. But the same story that they were having being turned away from emergency rooms or doctors who didn't get it or understand the level of pain that they were in. And they were talking about ending their lives. And I, at that moment, like it didn't put me off at all. Like Mm. that's how far down this hole I was that I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like such a relief, like to go to sleep and never wake up again and not face every day full of pain and frustration and no answers. And I leveled with Sheldon about that. Like I, that option doesn't sound terrible to me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wasn't okay to be thinking that. And so he helped me through that and fight and fight and fight. He said, you've got to find a doctor. We're going to go again and Mm -hmm. find. And I, I found this cornea specialist who literally saved my life. And I tell him that all the time. Like I prayed, God, if you're not going to heal me, please lead me to somebody to help me through this. And the next day I literally found this doctor and he worked me in. They had a cancellation. Thank you, God, that I got in there. And he, before he even saw me, he you know looked at the notes from his physician's assistant and he said, I know what you have. Wow. And that was the first relief bit of hope that I had. And he said, let me examine you, but I'm pretty sure. And what he diagnosed me with is a genetic cornea condition where I literally was tearing my cornea all day, every day. And it was never healing. And so the the tears were getting deeper and deeper. And the pain was just, if you've ever scratched your eyeball, you know what that pain is. And I was doing it day after day after day for two years. And so he said to me, "Um, I can help you. There are things that we can do. But as I was leaving, he said to me, "Um, you have to know something. There's no cure for this. Mm. And that really hurt that put me into a bad spiral but i felt god say to me i will be with you not i'm going to heal you but i will be with you and he has been and he walked me through all those days and nights trying all these different medications working with my doctor about seven years into it um there's a surgery that i had and he said it doesn't work for everyone but um it's the closest thing we have to a cure. And I knew it would be exceptionally painful and a really tough recovery. So I put it off for seven years. And he said, you'll know when you get to the point when we have no other options. Mm. So seven years in, we went into the surgery. It was excruciating, 
but it is giving me like 95% relief. Oh, Shannon. So it's, it really, for me has been equal to a cure. And I, I I tell the doctor, I, when I see him, I'm like, you know, you're an answer to prayer. And he's always like, that's weird. (laughs) Like, But he really was for me. Have people uh, emailed you or contacted you? Yes. And that's why I want to talk about it because I felt so alone in it. And I want people to know, like, keep advocating. You give the same message. Like, don't give up if you, if one avenue doesn't work or one doctor or one medication doesn't work, like you got to keep fighting and you'll feel exhausted and you'll feel demoralized, but you got to keep fighting and get to the right people in place that can help you. And so I've been able to help other people and it's primarily women. And I don't know if they just feel more comfortable reaching out to another woman, Mm. but a lot of women have this issue um, or some variation of it. So I've been able to either send them to my doctor or help them find somebody in their community. And so, yes, I get random unsolicited emails and things. And I'm thankful for that because I, there was a story a couple of years ago about a young woman who was in the news business and she took her life. She was living with us and took her life. And I sobbed for days over that. I felt like, why didn't I find her? Why Mm -hmm. didn't I connect with her? You just don't know what people are going through. But I felt like she was young. This didn't have to happen. But when you are in so much pain and you have no one willing to help you or acknowledge how much you're suffering, Mm -hmm. my heart broke over her. And I couldn't get over it just for days because I thought that could have been me and that there were other people out there suffering. So please reach out. There are people who love you. It doesn't matter if you're a stranger. I will help you. Someone will help you. No one should suffer alone. I feel that. I mean, when I get a message from someone who is newly diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, Mm -hmm. I will always say, what do you need? Mm -hmm. I will call you. I've been messaged on Twitter before and I'll leave my phone number because I just feel I know what it's like to be in that dark place. And you can literally be a piece of hope for Mm -hmm. that person. And you are because you're so open about sharing your story, which I think is so important for people to say, like, my life doesn't have to be over. And there are ways that you can fight for treatment and and look for innovative ways to get help. And so thank you for being honest and open about that. Uh, I love you so much. I love you too, my friend. Uh, To be continued, we didn't get into any shenanigans on this. Okay, but here's a deal. How about we consider, we continue this conversation on Live in the Bream? Oh, I like that. Okay, part two. Okay, part two coming up. Okay, I love it. Thank you, my friend. Love you. I love you too. Isn't she the best? We have so much fun together outside of Fox. So much so that we always joke, someone needs to be on standby for bail money. If there was such a thing as the fun police, we'd be arrested every time. Don't forget, for part two of the Bream Dean Dream Team, you will find it on Friday on the Living the Bream podcast. So have a great week, everyone. And thank you so much for listening. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.